Hey, Jenna. Dan. Hey. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Awesome. I'm sitting in my squeaky chair, and I'm going to try not to move, but I, it's funny how, like, when you, when you have these, these, like, important conversations, all of a sudden, everything becomes, you know, greater than it was before, like, the squeaky chair, the hum of my computer. Like, I've had so many, like, you know, video projects and things just, you know, you don't really realize the plane flying overhead until you get to the editing bay, and you're like, oh, my gosh, that plane. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I'm going to try to sit still, okay. try to get my fidgety okay. self to sit still. Anyway, um, thanks for joining me today on The Riff. And um, you work for DJJ. We'll get down to that in a second. But um, we've known each other for probably five, six years now. Yes, we have. So and we had a mutual friend that was an employee in my gold diving operation and I'm really wondering, because that was like three or four summers ago, I ran a gold diving operation. It's a 24-hour operation. And at the time, it's it, you're drinking really strong Kool-Aid when you're running a gold diving operation in Nome. And it's a weird culture. It's a weird environment. It's a weird thing to do. But when you're doing it, it just seems like it all makes sense. But from your perspective, um, being closely associated with that operation, um, did it seem like a well-oiled machine or did you think we were a bunch of dogs just chasing tires? <laughs> no, I actually thought for the most part, you guys uh, really seem to have it together. Um, I know that you and a couple <laughs> of your employees seem to be really dedicated. Uh, and for the most part, I mean, it seemed like you guys got the job done. I mean, there was gold cleanouts regularly and, um, you know, I mean, there, there was some downtime, but I didn't ever feel like it was just insane unpreparedness. You know, I thought you did pretty well. Nice. Well, I wasn't looking for a compliment, honestly, like looking back, <laughs> I mean, it felt like a circus a lot of the times, like I was getting up at two or three in the morning, running fuel cans down to the boat in the Harbor to get, you know, shuttled out to the guys that were working all night. And then sometimes I'd have to like get up at six for my own shift to dive and, yeah, it was it was a daze. Like that was that was the the most sober I've ever been, soberly intoxicated I've ever been. You know, <laughs> like it felt like I was on something, but I was stone cold sober. Just it was a crazy summer. Well, thanks for saying that. I appreciate that compliment. I'll pay you later. Take you out okay. to dinner once I get back up. <laughs> Thank no. you. Yeah. yeah. So I'm talking with Jana Hogan. Uh, she works for the partner, Department of Juvenile Justice. And but who are you? How'd you get to know? Tell me a little about, about yourself. All right. So um, I have been living in Nome for the past six and a half years. Um, I originally am from down in Utah. Uh, that's where I got my social work degree. It was from Utah State. Um, nice. I had originally had family up here in Nome. Uh, so when I graduated college, it just kind of seemed like a fun idea to leave Utah and try something new. Uh, and so with, yeah, having family up here, it was real easy just to be like, you know what, we're going and just pack our stuff and head up here. And we've been up here ever since. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's a weird metaphor when people move from coast to coast. Like when people come from Florida or New York all the way to Nome, that's when I kind of start wondering, like, what are you running from? You know, but middle of the country, it's an adventure. I came from Utah at that time, too. I, I, I was uh, working in an underground mine and I thought, you know what? I want to try and know. So that's how I ended up there. 
Um, yeah. Elm is definitely an adventure. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when did you start working for for so Department of Juvenile Justice? Without having to say that all the time, we're just going to call it DJJ. It's going to come out of our mouths real fast, like we practiced it because we have. So, um, when did you start with DJJ? So I started with DJJ probably two well about a month and a half after I moved to Nome. So that was January second of two thousand thirteen. <laughs> Give um, or take. My exact start date. I know, right? Um, <laughs> Counting so, the days. Yeah, so that's, I know. Well, I was going to say it was. I came up here and applied for that job immediately. So I was pretty excited when when it happened and it came through, and I was able to start working as a as a probation officer one. Uh, it's just kind of a beginner level PO, which uh-huh. was really um, which was really exciting for me because that was what I wanted to do, anyways. So to come up here and actually get the job I was wanting. Um, which is a huge benefit after I had taken the leap to move up here. Yeah. What did you do as a probation officer one? So basically the first year of being a probation officer is a lot of learning. It's a lot of shadowing. You're learning um, all of the policy and procedures of DJJ, which there's quite a few. I mean, the book is huge and you have to go through the whole thing. Uh, It's really important that you know what their policies are uh, to make sure that you're following all of the guidelines when you're working with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, another piece of that is kind of learning how the youth facility side works, um, and then as well as the court system. So you have to be able to write, you know, you're learning how to write petitions, you're learning kind of the Alaska statutes and laws, a lot of like the legal jargon that they use in court, and that way you're just kind of figuring out how to decipher what judges and attorneys say and kind of put it to work for you. So that's that's a lot of what the first year is, is just learning just tons and tons and tons of information. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's really interesting. I remember I started with OCS in 2009, and uh, sorry, Office of Children's Services, so Child Protective Services, and I did that for two years. And looking back, I remember just being overwhelmed with not just the policies and procedures you're talking about, which is also daunting. And there's updates that come multiple times a week, like sub- substantive updates to the policies and procedures. Then you have to keep track of all of that stuff, but also just the the newness and the difference of you know where the work actually happens where where i was working nome alaska is a rural hub it's 3500 people you have to fly to get there and um and it's a totally different region it's it's a it's a totally different experience from anything that i had experienced because i had a pretty extensive um, experience in social work when i got up there um what about the some of the cultural aspects or just some of the newness of the town and the region, were those also things that felt pretty overwhelming at first? It was, you know, it took me a really long time to get used to Nome and how things work and definitely getting used to um, having, you know, it's kind of a melting pot up here of cultures, but kind of having to use, get used to, um, you know, not your typical Utah setting. I mean, it was definitely a culture shock coming up here and it took me several years to probably get the hang of, um, you know, how to really work with people uh, from Nome and from the surrounding villages. Because, I mean, you mentioned you have to fly here, but you also have to fly anywhere else, too. So um, in visiting the surrounding villages and that type of thing, it was a lot of traveling. It was a lot of getting to know how to navigate um, villages. I always joke that this is the only place where I've ever accepted a ride on a four-wheeler from a stranger, and that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and you were excited about it. Learning the ropes. 
Yes, I know. When someone offered you a ride, it was like, yes, I don't know who you are, but I'm going to jump on your four-wheeler. Yeah, no, I've had that experience so often um, in the villages. It's, it's awesome. There's just so much hospitality. Um, and just to give people an idea, when you fly to any of the surrounding villages around Nome, you fly into a dirt landing strip, there is no facilities. Like, they usually have a, 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 a garage there for their snow-clearing um, equipment, and, and that's it. And so you, you get off a plane, you're in the elements, you're out in the weather, 24 hour summer, you know, sub-zero winter, you, you know, in the dark, like you land there and then you have to walk to whatever village you're going to. And some of the villages are a mile or two away from the landing strip. So you start walking and I don't, you know, in, um, in deference and out of respect, you know, to the different villages I've, I've worked in, like I've never had to walk the entire way. I've always had someone you know, say, Hey, can I give you a ride? Which I'm very grateful for, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's the best when someone will give you a ride out there. Um, Cause I mean, lots of times you're not a member of that community. You don't really know a ton of people other than the kids that you're out there to see in my case where they had been in trouble. So they're usually not looking forward to you anyways. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, definitely when somebody's like, Hey, do you want a ride? It's like, Oh my gosh, thank you. Yeah. It's, it, they're usually very welcoming communities and yeah, very hospitable people and helpful. That's yeah. one of the great things that I've noticed about this place. Yeah. Um, so talk to me about what you actually did as a PO. When you would go out to a community, what was the actual work that you were doing? What were you doing? So typically, like when we'd fly out to a village, we would have, um, I mean, we had assigned, there's a couple of POs and we each had assigned villages. And so when we would get referrals from villages, which is essentially, you know, a trooper report with, you know, reporting that a kid committed some crime. Um, lots of times, depending upon the severity, we could go out and we would meet with the kid and meet with the family and we'd go out and meet with the school and just kind of get a full scope picture of this kid, not just, you know, the wrong thing he had done um, or she. And, and really just kind of go and try to get familiar with every aspect of the, you know, the kids' lives that we're working with. Um, and so, yeah, it was a lot of walking around, a lot of meeting people, a lot of talking. Um, and then, of course, you go and you spend the whole day there, um, which is great because then you end up meeting a lot of people and kind of, you know, going and talking to, you know, the, the IRA or the council and kind of introducing yourself and kind of trying to build those relationships when you go out and work with kids. And that's something that you do um, every time when you go out. So um, that, that was a lot of it is just kind of that networking and communicating and just putting yourself out there to try to have a good relationship with, with each community that you visited as well as working with, you know, delinquent youth. Yeah. 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 Is that different than the way DJJ works in other States? You think? Um, I would, I mean, I would hope not. I hope that's what they're all doing. Um, I do know that laws are different and rules are different and how they use detention facilities are different in other states. Um, and I do know, you know, that I did have some friends that were uh, probation officers in Utah and it didn't really seem like they were going out and making those connections like that. It was kind of just a more, you know, court hearings and kids coming in for their delinquency referrals. Um, and so, yeah, I, I didn't really get a, a, a sense that this was happening other places until I moved here. Because um, mm -hmm. I know, like, just looking into the probation job to begin with, um, that this was something that was never mentioned. And then when I came up here, it was like, oh, nice. This is, we go and do all of these other things that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Um, and that's one thing that uh, we were going to talk about a little bit later, but that's a good segue into talking about some of the differences between the um, how 
DJJ does their work and how the adult correction system works. Um, that's a very different paradigm. Um, can you talk to that? Like, what, what is the focus of DJJ and how do you guys work? Yeah, so our main focus is, um, you know, rehabilitation, um, you know, holding the offender accountable for their actions, um, you know, and just kind of improving community relationships. So we kind of incorporate all of those things when we're working with juveniles. Um, and like I said, it's kind of rehabilitative is what we use um, in all of our guidelines and handling every kid that comes to our office, um, which is very different than, you know, the, the, the jail system. We, we try to use graduated responses and we try to really work with kids outside the court as well. Um, I mean, our goal is to try to keep kids outside of the legal system as much as we can. Um, without, you know, having to take that step of going through formal court. Yeah, I gotcha. So for us, yeah, I mean, for us, we, we kind of have more guidelines to follow and not necessarily like these hard rules of, of sentencing and, you know, you commit this crime, so you're going to have this sentence type thing. Um, we we kind of don't, we, we get away from that a little bit uh, with the DJJ model that we use here in Alaska. Oh, that's awesome. That's really interesting. There's, um, I mean, all around the United States, but also specifically in Alaska, there's, uh, there's a push for sentencing reform and, um, and and judicial reform in general, criminal justice reform in general. And some of it's good. Some of it's, you know, sideways. Some of it's straight up wonky. Um, but that's interesting that it hasn't um, affected your population as much. So <clears throat> that wasn't, I guess that wasn't really a question. That was just more of a statement. Um, so one of the things that you you work with you have to deal with is limited resources. I mean, you're doing a very important thing. You're checking on kids, um, but also you have you know weather. You have scheduling. You can't just get in your car, drive to the place, you know, to the house, um, and talk to the parents. You have to charter a flight. You have to go through. Uh, sorry, not charter a flight, but you have to uh, you know book a flight. You have to go through the state approvals to get out there. Um, you have to monitor weather things like that. And then once you actually get to the village, there's formal power structures in the village. There's also informal power structures. And it takes a little bit of time um, to learn who, who can actually get things done. Um, can you talk to me about some of the, some of the, I, I guess, difficulties you have with operating with limited resources, limited programs um, to be able to accomplish some of the rehabilitative mission of DJJ? Yeah. So, you know, for us, it's a lot of it is time management because, I mean, like you said, we're, we have to schedule flights to go out. They're weather dependent. Um, you know, we have court hearings. We have kids. I mean, we have um, – Nome has uh, – we currently have, like, 14 surrounding villages that we have uh, kids on our caseload in. And so it's, it's, yeah, managing your time, making sure you're getting out to each one of those kids and having the time to meet with them. Like I said, you know, we try to incorporate families, check in with mom and dad, see how things are going and the schools um, and so to have limited resources yeah you can't just jump in a car and drive it's really hard to sometimes juggle all those things like especially when you have a caseload of like 20 or 30 kids per probation officer um, wow. you know and then of course you can make all these great plans to go out in a village and do all these wonderful things and then fog rolls in and your plans are shot and there's nothing you can do about it yeah yeah so, or this this winter yeah, how many inches of snow did you guys have this winter Oh my gosh, I don't even know. I do know that we had like in one month we had 
tons of snow. We had tons of office closures, school closures, flight cancellations um, in one month. And I mean, yeah, I, I I don't know how many inches we got, but it was a ton. I mean, we just got dumped on, and yeah. and that makes it hard too. So yeah, um, always, and, and, always yeah, something and, and, to keep you on your toes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and <clears throat> something our listeners need to keep in mind: like, snow, Gnome is equipped to deal with snow. Like, we have special equipment that can move so much snow, snow or <laughs> snow quickly. And we have equipment operators that are solid. They're online 24 hours a day to just start the process as soon as it's it's ready to start clearing snow. Like we move snow so fast. We're not Washington State. We had some snow in Washington State this year, and I'm from Washington originally, but we uh, we get a couple of flakes, and it's like, I mean, you you barely have any snow on the road, and school closures, and everybody's just you know doesn't know what to do with it. But yeah, no one knows what to do do with snow, and when they get shut down, that's serious. That's a big deal. It is. Yeah, but from a work standpoint, when you have people, when you have like real people going through real things and you have real timelines and real check-ins you need to do with, with real kiddos that are, uh, you know, potentially trying to make some changes or families that are trying to, you know, support kiddos that are going through some hard times or communities, you know, whatever. Um, having a, have an office closure is really tough. It just puts, cause you still have to do all that work regardless of what the weather is doing. So yeah. That yeah, creates, absolutely. Yeah. One layer of difficult, one more layer of difficulty. Um, how re- how big of a region do you service, DJJ? So, yeah, so uh, me and my officers service Nome and uh, technically the 16 surrounding villages. Um, and then we are also currently covering the Cotsview region. Um, oh, and they geez. have 11 surrounding villages. So, yeah, we are packed right now um, with lots of areas, um, lots of coverage. Uh, yeah, we have a pretty far reach up here on uh, the kids we work with from all the different areas right now. Yeah, I'm just googling how big of a region that is. I know um, the 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 Seward or not the Seward Peninsula, like the Norton Sound region of Alaska is with all those villages. It's about the size of West Virginia, so that's about the area you normally cover when you say I'm in Nome and covering the 15 surrounding villages. On a day you're doing day trips around this, you know, a place the size of West Virginia. If you include Cots plus those surrounding villages. What's that? That's like the size of Georgia, pretty much, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, I know Cotsview is bigger than Nome. Um, yeah, and the <laughs> yeah. are a little bit more spread out here and there. But, yeah, it's it's a huge area to be for one office to be trying to cover. Um, but it, that's also just kind of part of being a rural probation officer is it's like, well, this is what happens. So we just deal with it and we just keep doing business as usual and you know, do everything we can to just try to provide coverage and make sure everybody's getting checked in on and and yeah. that with like they're supposed to. Yeah, yeah, and I was right on the knee jerk, by the way. Uh, that's that's about the size of Georgia, maybe the size of Virginia. But yeah, you're covering an area out of the Nome Field Office the size of Virginia. Luckily, there's not as many people, so there's that. Yeah. Yeah, that's intense, though. Yeah, so- like logistically. Um, so uh, SB 91, uh, Senate Bill 91, which was, um, we're not going to go into depth just because it doesn't apply to you guys, but I just want to kind of give a, a framework. Senate Bill 91 and 54 didn't affect your populations like it, like it did the adult male and female populations. Um, and that's specifically because your funding um, is a little bit different. DJJ is funded through different mechanisms. How can you describe the funding mechanisms through DJJ and 
and how some of those differences still, you know, cause, you know, difficulty within what you're trying to do with limited resources? Yeah, so I mean, we're we're mostly state funded. Um, we do receive some federal funding, um, and then we do receive some funding from Medicaid for um, some of the services that we help provide or facilitate. Um, so yeah, with that whole thing, uh, yeah, luckily with with kind of the way the system is set up for us, uh, the SB ninety one and SB fifty four didn't have a really big effect on us. Um, you know, our detention facilities aren't used as a sentencing facility. So, you know, our, our kids don't necessarily do jail time or have time served and those kinds of things. And so just kind of in the way that we deal with kids in general um, really just kind of eliminated us from a lot of uh, having to deal with any of that other, those other Senate bills that we're going through yeah. the bill system. Yeah, 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 gotcha. Um, can you tell me how the Gnome Youth Facility works? Yeah, so currently the Gnome Youth Facility has 10 detention beds and it has four secure treatment unit beds, uh, which means, and those are typically for um, kids that are court-ordered secure treatment. Um, so that's what those four beds are for. And then the detention facility is used as a temporary holding facility where kids uh, come in based on their uh, criminal referral and they're held for safety reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes those are those are short terms. Those can be a couple of days. And sometimes, you know, just when you're going through the whole thing of getting police reports and evidence and discovery distributed and working with attorneys, it takes a little bit longer to establish like a safe release plan. Um, and so, so the time variation uh, differs for detention kids. But yeah, but it's it's a pre adjudication temporary holding facility. Um, and the okay, goal is always to find a least restrictive a least restrictive placement. So as soon as a kid enters a detention facility, we're working on ways to try to get them out into a different placement. Gotcha. Um, so so what, are the, what are the criteria for bringing a kid in? Does that have to do with like, you know, risk to self, risk to others, risk to community, like active risk? Or? Uh, yeah. So yeah, risk to self, community, or flight risk. Um, okay, gotcha. Kind of the criteria. Um, so, but we have to incorporate that too with, you know, the age of the kid, what the actual like criminal referral is. Um, what their criminal history is, um, you know, what their home environment is like, you know, all these things, you know, we take into consideration when we when we decide whether or not to detain a kid. Um, so, yeah, so for us, it's not just like, oh, he's, you know, assaulted someone in detention. Sometimes we have ways that we can work that out where he doesn't actually have to come into the facility if we're able to work with the family to keep them out of the facility. Gotcha. So, um yeah, so, so there's, I mean, there's several things come into I'm play. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I got you. I just think several things come into play. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really interesting. It's, I mean, this is a whole other world. It's, it's super dynamic. I know when I was working over at Quirk, we had um, different conversations based on different kids. I was working as a foster parent recruiter. And so um, at various times, um, kids with criminal records um, or with barring conditions, we'll say it like that, kids that had, you know, broken certain laws and been adjudicated. Um, they were living in homes of foster parents, and because those kids had barring conditions for the foster home, um, then we had to, you know, work closely on some of those cases to figure out what was the best way for the foster parent to continue to foster um, while the kid still had a safe place to live, you know. So, and I I realized very quickly that there's a really interesting dynamic in Nome. There's a lot going on there. There's 
you have a certain amount of leeway, but then there's also certain things that you just can't budge on. And, and that has to do with knowing your policies, knowing your procedures. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I worked DJJ down in Utah and it seemed a lot more cut and dry um, how things work down in Utah. Um, and I'm assuming that's pretty much the case across the board, but that's cool that you have a little bit of leeway up there. Um, so one thing that happened as a result of um, Senate Bill 91 was that there was a spike in crime. And um, well, it, and then it went down, but now there's talk of like it going up. I'm wondering what the stats are for crime rates in our region. Um, did things just stay the same? Was it business as usual? Was it like totally dissociated with um, what was happening on the state, you know, on the, the adult level? Um, you know, as far as the adults go, I'm not sure. I know with DJJ, we just went business as usual and just kept doing what we were doing. Um, okay. You know, kind of regardless of the ups and downs with what was going on with that. Gotcha. Did you find any rise or any any like lowering of of rates? Like as far as your caseloads go, did they grow? Did they shrink? Did they stay the same? Uh, no, I mean they stayed pretty consistent. We kind of have up and down times you know which is pretty normal um but i don't, right. I don't think there's necessarily like notice an increase because of anything like that okay i gotcha um how do you think the difference in paradigm happens between the adult system and the juvenile system because i know that the juvenile the, the adult i've actually worked in a in a jail for nonviolent offenders and um so i've had um interactions there and you know these this population was allowed to go out and work and they, they were able to engage in services if they wanted to like uh, mental health services or whatever um so they had a little bit more leeway than some of the um it, i guess the population that's in jail would be able to have towards those services but at the end of the day u.s prison system just generally speaking is real punishment oriented and um, but what I'm hearing from you is that the juvenile justice system in Alaska anyway is is more rehabilitative oriented and you have frameworks to be able to do that. So it's not just, you know, like a tagline. It's actually the way you operate. How do you think that developed differently in Alaska from the youth to adults? You know, it's one of those, like, I'm really not sure how it kind of came about that they decided to do things this way. Um, I know a lot of the stuff that we use is evidence-based. Um, and so that's, you know, we apply a lot of those practices, a lot of those, you know, treatments and stuff, and a lot of those different counseling methods in working with kids. Um, and so I think that probably has something to do with it. It's just, you know, you have these kids, their their minds are still growing and they're still learning and they're still able to, you know, kind of build those those brainway connections on you know cause and effect and and you know different ways to respond to things um mm -hmm. and so you know i i think just kind of knowing that that you know kids are still growing they're still learning um it was kind of a really good way to look at it to be like hey we we don't need to punish these kids we can help them grow from this um, yeah absolutely. and then of course you know, there's all the evidence-based practices to kind of support that and support rehabilitative services um, I mean, it, it all just kind of makes sense to me, uh, yeah. you know, to work with kids this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, one thing that I, I've read a few different articles about uh, the developing brain and how it applies to our sentencing system. So in our society, we have certain benchmarks that are associated with age, but they're not necessarily associated with 
like maturity or brain development. For instance, at 16 people, well, in most states, at 16, uh, youth can start operating a car. And I've been a driver's ed instructor as well. And what I can tell you is that not all kids that can pass a driver's test are people that I want to allow to drive my vehicle. Um, but also we have this other age, it's at 18, we're allowed to vote, we're allowed to do a lot of different things in society, we're considered an adult. Um, but when you look at insurance rates, insurance rates go down at the age of 25. And that's interesting because the brain, the, a teenager's brain isn't fully developed until around age 25. And what that means is that the, the choice consequence aspect of our decision-making process, like our logic, our ability to use logic to make decisions, doesn't fully mature until age 25. But our, our prison, especially like through the 80s and 90s, we were um, adjudicating youth as adults at, you know, 15, 16, based on these egregious crimes that they had done. And, and you know, the crimes were awful, but also that team's brain wasn't fully developed. And so some of their ability to actually choose to know what they had done, it wasn't even developed. It wasn't real. Is there any sort of talk about changing mandatory ages? Or is that a conversation um, point? You know, as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about it. I know there's always argument of when, um, you know, it's a kid is uh, cognitively uh, mature enough to understand a court process to start prosecuting them formally. So I know that's always kind of an argument in court because, I mean, for us, it's like, you know, that magic age of 12, you should be able to reasonably understand between right and wrong and how a court hearing works is the mm -hmm. same as kind of the magic age of 18, where all of a sudden you have this birthday, and it's like, hey, you're an adult, so now if you commit a crime that you committed yesterday, you're going to have this severe punishment that, that you weren't getting two days before. So, you know, um, it's one of those, it, it's kind of a tricky situation. I, I'm not aware of any talks about it. I do know, like with us, though, we have jurisdiction to actually age 19, um, okay. which is really great because when we have kids turn 18 in our system and it's like, hey, you're an adult, and now we're going to continue helping you for a little bit longer in the adult process of life to try to help, you know, you stay on the right track and stay out of trouble and not end up in jail um, is, is you know, something that, that we've been able to do just because, yeah, we've, we've got that stipulation till age 19. Um, but, I mean, as far as anything else goes, I'm I'm really not sure if there's any plans to change that. Although I, I do agree with what you were saying, and it definitely makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's well, I, I, I mean, we'd have to change all of our expectations about everything to be able to change that little thing about you know how we how we adjudicate people. So I don't anticipate it changing, but I think it is a, an, an important talking point, especially when we're sentencing 18-year-old kids um, for crimes, and the crimes are committed. You know, I mean, it's one thing for someone to be accused falsely, but you know, when crimes are committed, there has to be a process for that. And we can't treat people that are committing crimes as victims. But at the same time, um, you know, recognizing the humanity of it and not just, you know, perpetuating more, you know, punishment on a potentially, without using a better word, like savable human um, without, you know, taking more of a DJJ approach uh, to rehabilitation. I'm not sure if we're actually going to get where we want to get. At the end of the day, the United States of America right now is the highest per capita population of incarcerated people in the world. So we talk about freedom. We talk about 
you know, eagles and the flag and red, white, and blue and stuff. But the fact is, United States has more people in prisons than North Korea, than China, than Russia, all these, you know, scapegoats we always say about totalitarian dictatorships or whatever we want to call those other countries. The United States has more people in jail than they do. So it's really valid to start asking really hard questions and not just ask the questions, but think about what can we actually do to change some of the paradigms. And so I love when I, when I hear you talking about, I think that's kind of a glimpse into how we can potentially start rolling out something on the adult level, because as we know, 18 year olds, when they turn 18, they're just 18 year olds, you know, and their brains are still developing. And why do we treat them very differently than a 17 and three quarters year old, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Rant. Several times I said, just because you're 18 doesn't mean you're an adult. <laughs> yeah. Which is, well, yeah, hell, I, I mean, I'm, I'm 40 now and I have my, I question myself sometimes, you know, <laughs> yeah. bless my heart. We don't, we don't need to get into those stories, but geez. Right. Um, what's a, what's an experience that you had that, um, that was really rewarding in the work that you do. What's the case? What's the case that you had that you were like, that was good. Like being involved there, being involved with that family, being involved in that situation. That was good. You know, I mean, obviously you can't use identifiers and I understand that, but you can just yeah. talk generally. You know, I, I can't really think of as maybe one will come to me as we're talking, but typically I always consider a success is a kid that graduates from our system and we never hear from them again. I never see them on the docket. I never, you know, see them at the one thirties, you know, in cups or anything, you know, for kids that, that graduate from the DJJ system and then mm-hmm. seem to move on with their lives. Like, to me, that's a success story. That makes me feel good for doing what I did because I feel like we did something right. Um, yeah, you know, awesome. We helped this kid in some way that, you know, they didn't come back and they didn't end up in the adult system. Um, you know, we've had several kids that we see, you know, we get an intake for something small like shoplifting or, you know, something minimal like that. Or maybe they punch their brother in the face and, you know, and we <laughs> meet with them and we meet with the parents and, you know, and maybe they're 13, 14 years old and we we have this one kind of informal meeting. And then that kid never comes back to us. And so, I mean, sometimes I don't always remember these kids because we, I don't see them again. They're not in my life every day. They're not being detained. Um, but those are the ones that I know make me feel good because I know that they're, they're not coming back. They're staying out of trouble. They're, they're doing something different instead of ending up uh, back in our office. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a mistake made. There was a lesson learned and then, you know, change happened and life moved on. You know, that's ideally how it's supposed to work. Yeah, that's great. Well, are there any other questions that I should have asked? Not that I can think of. All right. I don't know. I feel like we've we've covered a lot of stuff. Um, Oh, yeah. One of the things, actually, I did kind of want to mention is that when we were talking about rural, um, kind of issues with being rural is kind of the lack of providers and the lack of, um, like, residential facilities in rural areas. Uh Yeah, yeah. So, you know, anytime a kid needs treatment, uh, they have to be sent out to Anchorage or Fairbanks or Kenai. And, and it's really disappointing um, when you can't have kids in your own community to kind of help them use the skills they're learning where they're from. 
Um, yeah. So that's that's one of the difficulties we face also. Um, and so, yeah, I just I just wanted to mention that, that that's something that we that hopefully we're working on, though, and we're hoping to have some other type, I mean, other than our secure treatment unit, some other type of uh, residential facility for juveniles uh, in Nome so that way we can try to keep them, keep them home while we're working with them. Yeah, no, that's a really, really important point. <clears throat> I've worked at NACTEC as well. Like, I've basically worked at every job a person can at Nome. So um, I worked out at NACTEC, and one of the things, sorry, Northwestern Alaska Career and Technical Education Center, they're a vocational school located in Nome, but they um, they provide vocational training for kids from the villages. So they'll come in like a boarding school, and they'll, they'll come in for a week and a half or two weeks and, and work on small engine repair or, you know, careers in the medical industry or whatever. Anyway, one of the things that they've worked with is a lot of times they're bringing kids in and it's their very first time ever being away from their family. And it's their very first time ever being away from Nome. I'm sorry, from, from their village. And villages are generally, you know, 300 to 500 people. Um, there aren't a lot of cars in the villages. Most of them have, you know, dirt roads and, and it's just very, very rural, very tight knit. And so coming into Nome, it's, I mean, kids think Nome is a big city. You know, it's 3,500 people and there's, you know, like, like there's six or seven miles of paved roads and we have two grocery stores and kids look at that like I look at Las Vegas, you know, <laughs> or New York City. Yeah. Like Nome is the big city. It's it's where all the fun stuff happens, where you go shopping, you know, it's, it's like this big adventure. And so anyway, but yeah, kids coming from the villages to Nome, especially for in your in your world, you know, kids coming from Nome to uh, get services or come to the, the Nome youth facility. And then if they have to get shipped out, you know, for more serious stuff, you know, the village to Nome is a whole other world. It's like the moon, but then the, then Nome to Anchorage is like Pluto, which I don't even know if it's a planet anymore, but it's just out there. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. a, just a totally different scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's another issue is that um, a lot of the relevance and the, you know, the continuity of where I'm from, who my people are, what my people are like, um, how we talk, how we dress, what we think is cool. I mean, it's it's not just a, a shock of principles and, you know, freedom, you know, like incarceration is or, or detention is, but it's a shock of everything. I mean, it's about as fish out of water as you can possibly get. How do, which brings up another question. How does, um, how does your work differ from the the, the hubs, or the bigger hubs in um, in Alaska, like Anchorage, you know, Fairbanks? Like, are they is DJJ working similar to you are, or are they do they have a different paradigm in the bigger cities? You know, um, the bigger cities have definitely. Um, I mean, we all have similar crimes, but I know, like in Anchorage and stuff, kids are doing a lot more serious things, uh, so they have to handle those obviously a little bit differently. Um, but the nice thing about DJJ in Alaska is that we're all kind of following that same policy and procedure and the same laws so that we were all following the same guidelines. So mm -hmm. realistically, the the approach that we're using in a rural community is, is being used throughout the entire state. Um, I but, you know, I, it, like I said, in the bigger city, when the, when the crime rates are different or you're getting a kid that murdered somebody, um, I mean, you obviously got to handle that different. So when you have higher risk kids, your guidelines are going to be a little bit different than when you're you're working in with the rural kids. And luckily we haven't had anything that serious happen in the time that I've been here. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we've been able to just kind of do things the way that, you know, I described earlier, which has been really good so far. Yeah. 
So ever since I've been up in Nome, there's been talk of closing the Nome Youth Facility. It's usually budget related. And um, what is what is your mechanism for disseminating the value of the Nome Youth Facility within Nome and within the greater Nome region? Um, how do you what do you say to people that say Nome Youth Facility isn't necessary? Um, yeah, most of the time the people who are saying that have never been here. They've never been to the youth facility. They don't know that the kids that we're working with and the families that are, you know, close and are able to come and visit their kids. And so lots of times just saying, like, you know, come and, come and actually see what we're doing um, can kind of put a different tune to them. But, yeah, just kind of trying to explain that. I mean, we are the only facility in, like, the northern region for, you know, Nome and Cotsview. You know, so it's like, okay, do you really want to take these village kids who, you know, are being detained for certain crimes and taking them to Anchorage or to Bethel or to Fairbanks to be held for court? You know, the chances of them seeing their families are much less than if they're here in Nome, and the chances of them, you know, remaining connected with their community is less if you're going to be shipping them out than keeping them here. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's so far-reaching how important the facility is that, yeah, people who haven't been here just really don't understand the importance of it and the importance of keeping the kids here. So just trying to justify, you know, that these kids have to come back home at some point and it's better to keep them here than send them out. Um, it's just you know, a, a really important message that, that everyone should have a better understanding of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's also <clears throat> for upper level care, like for residential um, facilities, that we don't have a lot of options in, in, in Alaska, period. And so there's, there's kids that need higher level of care, um, full-time therapeutic care and, and counseling, that they end up going down to the lower 48. And I have, I have no beef with programs that are trying to help kids. I've actually worked in some of those programs. So, and I know, you know there, there's pluses and minuses to those programs, but when you take a rural Alaska kid and you bring him, I don't know, to Utah, for instance, or to Oregon or wherever these programs are, it's really, really tough to create cultural continuity with what the kids experienced, what they're going to go back to, and, you know, what, what the experience is going to be in this program. So, yeah, keeping kids as close to home as possible for as long as possible. Um, I'm a, ab yeah, absolute proponent of that. I think, so, yeah. Yeah. I fully support yeah, that. Yeah, cultural identity. <laughs> And keeping them home, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, yeah, places in, in Washington or Oregon and Utah, you know, I mean, they can't imagine where these kids are coming from. They don't understand, always understand, you know, subsistence hunting and subsistence activities and things that they do as a family. Um, yeah, and so to kind of keep that cultural component, I mean, the kids, they, they need to stay here uh, and able to get that so that they, they know who they are and where they come from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that brings up another point, like, for for kids to leave to Nome, to Anchorage, to California, I mean, that's moon, stars, Pluto. It's just a whole other universe, you know. But it's the same thing for, for support staff trying to work with those kids until they actually come up to Nome, come up to the villages, see how life actually works, what the values actually are, um, the pace of things, everything like that. It, it's the same for them. It's the moon to them. And so saying, like, well, I I did this certification on indigenous studies or something like that's important and that's a great start but coming up and actually experiencing life the way these kids are experiencing it I think that's um it's super valuable just like you're saying I mean I I felt like after 
seven or eight years of um, working in the region, I felt like I finally started to have a good understanding of um, what to push and when to shut my mouth because I just didn't know. You know, I felt like that that was my, my time frame for learning that stuff. How do you how do you incorporate cultural values into your program? So, I mean, that's something that we're always trying to do um, is keep kids really connected with their communities and with their families. Um, I know, like, for an example, like something at the NOM Youth Facility, so when kids are here, you know, for, for their temporary holding, um, one of the things that the youth facility does is a, they do a yearly culture camp. Um, mm -hmm. And they actually take these kids out who are you – know, and, and NOM is one of the few facilities that's able to do this in the state. But they actually, you know, take these kids that are court-ordered to a locked facility, but they actually take them out and they take them uh, fishing and they take them berry picking and they take them canoeing and swimming. And, you know, they're they're learning how to, you know, cut fish, how to dry fish, you know, how to do fillets, um, berry picking, how to make Eskimo ice cream. You know, we have some great people um, that will fly in and help, you know, volunteer and participate at our camps and they're teaching kids how to do these things that, that they can take back home and do there as well. Um, and so yeah. I know like that, that's something huge that we try to do at least two or three times a year if possible in the summertime is do these culture camps. Um, and then a lot of like the groups and treatment work that they're doing is, you know, a, a lot of it, we try to make it as culturally based as possible so that it's not a completely foreign concept to them. Um, and mm -hmm. for kids coming in from the village. So it's, I mean, it, it's something that we're constantly striving for to improve. Um, so I mean, it's like at one point we're like, oh yeah, we're doing great, but you can always do better. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that, that's definitely something that that yeah, Nome and a lot of the rural areas are really trying to do. Yeah, and I mean, to a lot of people, you know, I'm active online and I follow a lot of outdoorsy people, and you know, there's a lot of you know good feeling surrounding you know connection with nature and going out and camping and things like that. Um, there's this word in in rural Alaska called subsistence. It's that's the word, and it has to do with federal hunting laws and state hunting laws, there are subsistence hunting laws. But when you look at what the actual cultural value of subsistence is, it's, it's a religious principle for Native Alaskans. And I, I can't speak for Native Alaskans, but this is my best attempt at describing it as I've been studying and, and pondering this and observing it for a decade, is that it's a religious principle. And if we look at it like that, if we frame it like that, that when, when you know, kids are growing up and their families part of their religion, part of their culture, but also part of their just spiritual connection is subsistence activities. It has to do with not just their connection with the land, which has to do with, you know, like, I don't know, beauty and respect or whatever, but with using the resources of the land, which has to do with hunting, with fishing, with berry picking, um, and then, you know, the types of food that you make with those things. So it's very, very connected in a way that most people in the lower 48, especially in cities, just don't understand. We go to this. I just went to the store today. Like I've, I, I'm, I'm in Utah right now. I went to the store. I bought so much food for a hundred dollars. So much food. I bought like three dozen eggs. I bought like a, like 24 pack of seltzered water. Like I didn't make any choices at all. I just said, Hey, I kind of want it. Let's put it in the cart. I bought it hundred dollars. Um, that's yeah. not an option in the villages. You know, everything's about three times as much as you would find you know, at, at the store that I just went to today, um, jobs are scarce. And so people are making do with what they can. And so a lot of that is subsistence, subsistence activities. And so it's not just um, for financial reasons. It's also a cultural value. So that subsistence principle is so important 
uh, for Native Alaskans. And what I found in my work with uh, um, Child Protective Services with the Office of Children's Services is a lot of the families that were breaking down, they distanced themselves from some of those subsistence activities and they weren't practicing um, as much as they wanted to or could. And I found that I, I would have conversations like, what are things that you really like to do that help you feel good, that bring you, make you connected, you know, with your community? And, and invariably, um, the families that I would work with, they would talk about subsistence activities, and I would encourage them just to do it. And, um, and I saw some families over the course of my work that they started to take that into consideration. They started to take more walks, for instance, or they would start to, I, I would see them berry picking more often. Because it's a small community, you can see the effect of the conversations you have with people. And it's really cool to see that stuff happening, like just kind of um, validating what is a really powerful spiritual and cultural principle and then helping people to just give themselves permission uh, to start doing it more. So, you know, that sounds like the work that you're doing. So that's really cool. Yeah, um, thank you. No, it, it is it's definitely neat to see. Yeah, what kind of subsistence activities do you do now? You've been in, uh, an Alaskan for six years. Um, probably fishing. I know how to fillet fish now. I can fillet my own my own reds if I want to, or um, you know, silvers. If I want to cut up some pinks and can them. That's how yeah, I picked awesome. up since I've been here. <laughs> yeah, I'm not well, and to eat weird meat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, salmon are salmon are salmon. Like I listen, I I pride myself on just eating what's in front of me, and I always will. Like I've I've had a lot of humble meals throughout my life from people that had a lot less and were just generous. So I'm really grateful for those meals. But that being said, if there's one area that I'm a snob now, it's with salmon because salmon are not salmon. I don't even bother ordering salmon in Lower 48 anymore. I just don't even bother. Uh, what's your favorite type of salmon? Now, definitely the reds, like the kings. They are such beautiful flavorful fish like yeah and the fact that they're fresh when you get them like mm -hmm. you can't beat it i mean i used to think silvers were pretty good but no i'll take a king salmon any day <laughs> nice what's your favorite recipe um honestly i probably like to keep it just with olive oil salt and pepper and lemon on top just keep it simple yeah. Yeah. yeah me too I, I know a lot of people that put mayonnaise and all sorts of garnishments on it and like a good a good fillet Keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Let the fish speak for itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, you yeah. cook it so it it isn't still speaking for itself, but yeah. Exactly. Anyway, well, Janet, thanks for thanks for your time. I really appreciate you you letting me pick your brain and making yourself available. Good luck with your work, and if there's ever anything I can do for you, let me know. Okay. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. Have a good one.